Lucy was rather alarmed. She thought Stephen and Maggie were not going to like each other. She had always feared lest Maggie should appear too old and clever to please the critical gentleman. Why, dear Maggie, she interposed, you have always pretended that you are too fond of being admired. And now, I think, you are angry because someone ventures to admire you. Not at all, said Maggie. I like too well to feel that I am admired, but compliments never make me feel that. I will never pay you a compliment again, Miss Tulliver, said Stephen. Thank you. That will be a proof of respect. Poor Maggie. She was so unused to society that she could take nothing as a matter of course. And never in her life had she spoken from the lips merely, so that she must necessarily appear absurd to more experienced ladies, from the excessive feeling she was apt to throw into very trivial incidents. But she was even conscious herself of a little absurdity in this instance. It was true that she had a theoretic objection to compliments, and had once said impatiently to Philip that she didn't see why women were to be told with a simper that they were beautiful, any more than old men were to be told that they were venerable. Still, to be so irritated by a common practice in the case of a stranger like Mr. Guest, and to care about his having spoken slightingly of her before he had seen her, was certainly unreasonable, and as soon as she was silent, she began to be ashamed of herself. It did not occur to her that her irritation was due to the pleasanter emotion which preceded it, just as when we are satisfied with a sense of glowing warmth, an innocent drop of water may fall upon us as a sudden smart. Stephen was too well-bred not to seem unaware that the previous conversation could have been felt embarrassing, and at once began to talk of impersonal matters, asking Lucy if she knew when the bazaar was at length to take place, so that there might be some hope of seeing her reign the influence of her eyes on objects more grateful than those worsted flowers that were growing under her fingers. "'Some day next month, I believe,' said Lucy. "'But your sisters are doing more than I am. They have the largest stall.' "'Ah, yes, but they carry on their manufactures in their own sitting-room, where I don't intrude on them. "'I see you are not addicted to the fashionable vice of fancy-work, Miss Tulliver,' said Stephen, looking at Maggie's plain hemming. "'No,' said Maggie. "'I can do nothing more difficult or more elegant than shirt-making.' "'And your plain sewing is so beautiful, Maggie,' said Lucy, "'that I think I shall beg a few specimens of you to show us fancy-work.' Your exquisite sewing is a, quite a mystery to me. You used to dislike that sort of work so much in old days. It is a mystery easily explained, dear, said Maggie, looking up quietly. Plain sewing was the only thing I could get money by, so I was obliged to try and do it well. Lucy, good and simple as she was, could not help blushing a little. She did not quite like that Stephen should know that. Maggie need not have mentioned it. Perhaps there was some pride in the confession, the pride of poverty that will not be ashamed of itself. But if Maggie had been the queen of coquettes, she could hardly have invented a means of giving greater piquancy to her beauty in Stephen's eyes. I am not sure that the quiet admission of plain sewing and poverty would have done alone, but assisted by the beauty, they made Maggie more unlike other women even than she had seemed first. But I can knit, Lucy, Maggie went on, if that will be of any use for your bazaar. Oh, yes, of infinite use. I shall set you to work with scarlet wool tomorrow. 
but your sister is the most enviable person, continued Lucy, turning to Stephen, to have the talent of modeling. She is doing a wonderful bust of Dr. Ken entirely from memory. Why, if she can remember to put the eyes very near together and the corners of the mouth very far apart, the likeliness can hardly fail to be striking in St. Dog's. Now that is very wicked of you, said Lucy, looking rather hurt. I didn't think you would speak disrespectfully of Dr. Ken. I say anything disrespectful of Dr. Ken? Heaven forbid. But I am not about to respect a libelous bust of him. I think Ken one of the most finest fellows in the world. I don't care much about the tall candlesticks he has put on the communion table. And I shouldn't like to spoil my temper by getting up too early prayers every morning. But he's the only man I ever knew personally, who seems to me to have anything of the real apostle in him. A man who has eight hundred a year and is contented with deal furniture and boiled beef because he gives two-thirds of his income. That was a very fine thing of him, taking into his house that poor lad Grattan who shot his mother by accident. He sacrifices more time than a less busy man could spare to save the poor fellow from getting into a morbid state of mind about it. He takes the lad out with him constantly, I see. That is beautiful, said Maggie, who had let her work full and was listening with keen interest. I never knew anyone who did such things. And one admires that sort of action in Ken all the more, said Stephen, because his manners in general are rather cold and severe. There's nothing sugary and maudlin about him. Oh, I think he's a perfect character, said Lucy, with pretty enthusiasm. No, there I can't agree with you, said Stephen, shaking his head with sarcastic gravity. Now, what fault can you point out in him? He's Anglican. Well, those are the right views, I think, said Lucy gravely. That settles the question in the abstract, said Stephen, but not from parliamentary point of view. He has set the dissenters and the church people by the ears, and a rising senator like myself, of whose services the country is very much in need, will find it inconvenient when he puts up for the honour of representing Sir Dogs in a parliament. Do you really think of that? said Lucy, her eyes brightening with a proud pleasure that made her neglect the argumentative interests of Anglicanism. Decidedly, whether old Mr. Leyburn's public spirit and gout induce him to give way, my father's heart is set on it, and gifts like mine, you know. Her Stephen drew himself up and rubbed his large white hands over his hair with playful self-admiration. While gifts like mine involve great responsibilities. Don't you think so, Miss Tulliver? Yes, said Maggie, smiling but not looking up. So much fluency and self-possession should not be wasted entirely on private occasions. Ah, I see how much penetration you have said Stephen. You have discovered already that I am talkative and impudent. Our superficial people never discern that, owing to my manner, I suppose. She doesn't look at me when I talk of myself, he thought, while his listeners were laughing. I must try other subjects. Did Lucy intend to be present at the meeting of the book club next week, was the next question. Then followed the recommendation to choose Southey's Life of Coper, unless she were inclined to be philosophical and startle the ladies of St. Ogg's by voting for one of the Bridgewater treatises. 
Of course, Lucy wished to know what these alarming learned books were, and as it is always pleasant to improve the minds of ladies by talking to them at ease on subjects of which they know nothing, Stephen became quite brilliant in an account of Buckland's treatise, which he had just been reading. He was rewarded by seeing Maggie let her work fall and gradually get so absorbed in his wonderful geological story that she sat looking at him, leaning forward with crossed arms and with an entire absence of self-consciousness, as if he had been the snuffiest old professor and she a downy-limped alumna. He was so fascinated by the clear, large gaze that at last he forgot to look away from it occasionally toward Lucy. But she, sweet child, was only rejoicing that Stephen was proving to Maggie how clever he was and that they would certainly be good friends after all. I will bring you the book, shall I, Miss Tulliver? said Stephen, when he found the stream of his recollections running rather shallow. There are many illustrations in it that you may like to see. Oh, thank you, said Maggie, blushing with returning self-consciousness at this direct address, and taking up her work again. No, no, Lucy interposed. I must forbid your plunging Maggie in books. I shall never get her away from them, and I want her to have a delicious do-nothing days, filled with boating and chatting and riding and driving. That is the holiday she needs. Apropos, said Stephen, looking at his watch. Shall we go out for a row on the river now? The tide will suit for us to the Tofton Way, and we can walk back. That was a delightful proposition to Maggie, for it was years since she had been on the river. When she was gone to put on her bonnet, Lucy lingered to give an order to the servant, and took the opportunity of telling Stephen that Maggie had no objection to seeing Philip, so that it was a pity that she had sent that note for the day before yesterday. But she would write another tomorrow and invite him. I'll call and beat him up tomorrow, said Stephen, and bring him with me in the evening, shall I? My sisters will want to call on you when I tell them your cousin is with you. I must leave the field clear for them in the morning. Oh, yes, pray bring him, said Lucy. And you will like Maggie, shan't you? She added in a beseeching tone. Isn't she a dear, noble-looking creature? Too tall, said Stephen, smiling down upon her. And a little too fiery. She's not my type of woman, you know. Gentlemen, you are aware are apt to impart these imprudent confidences to ladies concerning their unfavorable opinion of sister fair ones. That is why so many women have the advantage of knowing that they are secretly repulsive to men who have self-denyingly made ardent love to them. And hardly anything could be more distinctly characteristic of Lucy than that she both implicitly believed what Stephen said and was determined that Maggie should not know it. But you, who have a higher logic than the verbal to guide you, have already foreseen, as the direct sequence to that unfavorable opinion of Stephen's, that he walked down to the boathouse calculating, by the aid of a vivid imagination, that Maggie must give him her hand at least twice in consequence of this pleasant boating plan, and that a gentleman who wishes ladies to look at him is advantageously situated when he is rowing them in a boat. What then? Had he fallen in love with the surprising daughter of Mrs. Tulliver at first sight? Certainly not. Such passions are never heard of in real life. Besides, he was in love already, and half engaged to the dearest little creature in the world, and he was not a man to make a fool of himself in any way. But when one is five and twenty, one has not chalkstones at one's finger ends, that the touch of a handsome girl should be entirely indifferent. 
it was perfectly natural and safe to admire beauty and enjoy looking at it, at least under such circumstances as the present. And there was really something very interesting about this girl, with her poverty and troubles. It was gratifying to see the friendship between the two cousins. Generally, Stephen admitted, he was not fond of women who had any peculiarity of character. But here, the peculiarity seemed really of a superior kind, and provided one is not obliged to marry such women, why they certainly make a variety in social intercourse. Maggie did not fulfill Stephen's hope by looking at him during the first quarter of an hour. Her eyes were too full of the old banks that she knew so well. She felt lonely, cut off from Philip, the only person who had ever seemed to love her devotedly as she had always longed to be loved. But presently, the rhythmic movement of the oars attracted her, and she thought she would like to learn how to row. This roused her from her reverie, and she asked if she may take an oar. It appeared that she required much teaching, and she became ambitious. The exercise brought the warm blood into her cheeks, and made her inclined to take her lesson merrily. I shall not be satisfied until I can manage both oars and row you and Lucy, she said, looking very bright as she stepped out of the boat. Maggie, we know, was apt to forget the things she was doing, and she had chosen an inopportune moment for her remark. Her foot slipped, but happily Mr. Stephen Guest held her hand and kept her up with a firm grasp. You have not hurt yourself at all, I hope, he said, bending to look in her face with anxiety. It was very charming to be taken care of in that kind, graceful manner by someone taller and stronger than oneself. Maggie had never felt just in the same way before. When they reached home again, they found Uncle and Aunt Pullet seated with Mrs. Tulliver in the drawing room, and Stephen hurried away, asking leave to come again in the evening. And pray bring with you the volume of Purcell that you took away, said Lucy. I want Maggie to hear your best songs. Aunt Pullet, under the certainty that Maggie would be invited to go out with Lucy, probably to Park House, was much shocked at the shabbiness of her clothes, which, when witnessed by the higher society of St. Ogg's, would be a discredit to the family. That demanded a strong and prompt remedy, and the consultation as to what would be most suitable to this end, from among the superfluities of Mrs. Pullet's wardrobe, was one that Lucy, as well as Mrs. Tulliver, entered into with some zeal. Maggie must really have an evening dress as soon as possible, and she was about the same height as Aunt Pullet. But she is so much broader across the shoulders than I am. It is very ill-convenient, said Mrs. Pullet. Else she might wear that beautiful black brocade of mine without any alteration. And her arms are beyond everything, added Mrs. Pullet, sorrowfully, as she lifted Maggie's large round arm. Oh, she'd never get my sleeves on. Oh, never mind that, aunt. Send us the dress, said Lucy. I don't mean Maggie to have long sleeves, and I have an abundance of black lace for trimming. Her arms will look beautiful. Well, Maggie's arms are a pretty shape, said Mrs. Tulliver. They're like mine used to be, only mine was never brown. Oh, I wish she had our family skin. Nonsense, auntie, said Lucy, patting her aunt Tulliver's shoulder. You don't understand those things. A painter would think Maggie's complexion beautiful. Maybe, my dear, said Mrs. Tulliver submissively. You know better than I do. Only when I was young, a brown skin wasn't thought well on among respectable folk. No, said Uncle Pullet, 
who took intense interest in the lady's conversation as he sucked his lozenges. Though there was a song about the nut-brown maid, too. I think she was crazy. Crazy Kate. But I can't justly remember. Oh, dear, dear, said Maggie, laughing but impatient. I think that will be the end of my brown skin, if it is always to be talked about so much. End of Book 6, Chapter 2 Recording by Sarafina Saransky in Utrecht, Holland